Welcome back, everybody, to Brubble Podcast, a, a podcast exploring young voices and perspectives from in and around the Brussels bubble. And I'm your host, Simon. Our topic today is quite broad, emotions. Um, you might think, Simon, why are we talking about emotions in a podcast which typically explores policy and politics in Europe? Well, I, th- I think there's a good case that can be made that we can improve how we as individuals approach these issues of politics and, and you know, and policy in our everyday lives and in our, in our line of work by focusing on exploring emotions and our own lived experiences within these topics. So off that point, and, and hopefully that's tantalizing enough that you haven't clicked off yet, <laughs> today we'll be exploring not only what the role of emotions in politics is from a bit more of an academic perspective, but also in the second half of this podcast, exploring how we can better use and develop our own emotions to succeed more and you know expand our own experiences in our everyday lives. And you know, taking our hand in this journey on this life of ours is Patrick. How are you today, Patrick? Thank you, Simon. I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, giving me this opportunity. Yeah, no worries. It's always nice to have another warm body to warm uh, what is a, a tight box on a cold gray Brussels afternoon. <laughs> yeah, some classic feelings for Brussels, right? <laughs> yeah, then again. Yeah, guess so. But you, you were doing some traveling earlier. You were in Paris. I mean, Paris is not known for being too lively, no? <laughs> well, it was quite the opposite, <laughs> of course, <laughs> surprisingly. Now I was uh, there for a little run, which was absolutely lovely at the Champs-Élysées. So I um, was lucky. Uh, same like Brussels, you're not always so lucky with the weather in Paris, I'd say. True. But uh, on that uh, weekend, I had some, some sunlight that I could really, really enjoy. So that was absolutely amazing. Yeah, setting personal... I don't know if you set a personal milestone. I hope you did, but... Uh, Actually, it was, yeah. It was one uh, my fastest 10K ever run, so uh, that was the <laughs> challenge, and I really enjoyed it, and that worked We out. need to get some tips in the end of the podcast on how to improve not only our emotional state, I suppose, but also our, you know, our legs for the run. But speaking a bit about, you know, your personal milestones, we haven't introduced you yet, Patrick. Do, do you want to take the, take the wheel here and, and tell us a bit about who you are, what you do in life, uh, why you're qualified to talk about emotions? <laughs> of course. Very happy to do that. So, yeah, uh, I'm Patrick, um, also called Vandi. It's kind of my nickname. Uh, comes a little bit from my family name, Van der Welle, which is uh, obviously a Flemish name, though I am not Belgian or Flemish. Uh, I'm born and raised in Germany uh, since 2018. I'm now here in, uh, in Brussels, working in the bubble, in the political sector. And, um, yeah, I changed a little bit what I was doing throughout the last years and ended up now being a coach for uh, emotional transformation and resilience. Interesting, interesting. And when you say emotional transformation resilience, what does that mean? That's a very good question, <laughs> obviously. Um, so emotional transformation, basically it already the word transformation already indicates it. So it's a change a little bit. How do we work with our emotions when we have a strong emotional feeling, how can we uh, not necessarily change it, but really accept it, live with it, um, and maybe even make something positive out of it. So emotion, energy, and motion, disregarding if it's a positive or a good uh, or a negative one. Um, it's an energy and you can work a little bit with it. Uh, we all know that in our everyday lives and I'm uh, there to be like a little guide for it. And when it comes to resilience, um, so to get a more resilient outlook on life when you face emotions that come out of a situation you might get angry stressed sad very quickly so um to get more resilient on that and have a better understanding of what happens to you actually in the moment that you feel the emotion yeah 
It's interesting how you transition to this new line of work in a sense, and, and you've started your own, I think, company recently to focus on that. The links in the description below if you <laughs> exactly. are at all interested by the conversation we're having today. But I find it very fascinating that, I mean, you started out very similar to, I think, most listeners as podcasts, working a bit more the policy world and in the, in the think tank world, yeah. transitioning on the Brussels bubble. How did you really end up in the emotions, I guess, line of work, if I can call it that? So there are actually f- several factors that play a role. Uh, one very prominent one uh, to a lot of people and the changes that may might have occurred uh, in the last years is COVID and mm. everything that uh, that came with it. So the whole lockdown situation at the very beginning um, as a very outgoing and extrovert person like me who gets a lot of energy from the interactions with others, I was faced with a challenge of, okay, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with being by myself, with my thoughts, with my emotions? So that was already like a first little development. Um, at the same time, over the my first experience, over my first years here in Brussels, I realized a little bit that the bubble has its challenges, of course, and its advantages. But for me, the challenges were bigger than I than I thought. So uh, it felt a little bit, I would even say toxic to me, mm. that I realized, okay, the work is focused on higher, better, faster, more. It's about money. It's about prestige, which is all fine that it's part of the game. But I got more and more the feeling that this is more important than anything else. For example, the humans within the system fellow colleagues, for example, who struggled a lot. And a lot of people here in the bubble, I've heard about having some issues facing stress, anxiety, related issues, just to name some of them. It's an interesting personal voyage. And I'm sure we've all gone through these curves in our lives as as we've gone through the the paths ahead of us. And it's interesting to see how you took this curve. But speaking of how you took this curve, how are you qualified or, or how did you end up working in these emotions? Like what are the the learnings, the teachings, or is it all internal that this is coming from? Um, qualified by experience, I would say. <laughs> no, no, of course, there's more to that. Um, so as I explained, there was a personal experience and that linked to that. Um, uh, for example, the, the, the stress and anxiety that I just described, it's something I personally experienced mm-hmm. in my job, in my everyday life. It started impacting my private life the energy I had beforehand to do to learn another language, to work in a social context, to do something, you know, out of the box, something good for your soul as well. Yeah. There was no energy for it anymore. Mm. And I was really like I wouldn't say burnout, but it was more like an emotional burnout if you if you if you want to say it like that. And so Basically, in this whole situation, then I thought, okay, what, what, how can I deal with it? How can I, can I approach that? Because I felt like, you know, turning in circles, always repeating the same mistakes, so to say. And I always was interested in kind of personal development topics. And then in this whole situation, I decided, okay, maybe I should invest more in that. So I invested uh, some time and some resources to uh, get trained to become a coach. Thankfully, everything was possible online at the time. So COVID had, of course, its advantages to a certain extent. So I did a one-year online training uh, to become a coach, uh, which ended uh, with a final exam and a certification where I really focused on how to deal with emotion. And what used to be or started as a personal project to help myself um, became much more... uh, 
yeah, a topic of interest to me to see, okay, where else do emotions play a role? Hmm. And the more and more I read about it and I got into it, I saw links in politics and in the basically in the field that I used to work, right? Where I have a completely different point of view. I worked on peace, security and defense issues beforehand. So not the field where you where emotions come to your mind right away. So Long story short, in the end, is I, I saw the, the possibility to combine those two elements, so the political element with the emotion trainings. Um, I saw the advantage for myself, so I can, I'm, I'm basically like kind of a, a personal witness of how possible <laughs> that is. And uh, yeah, I saw that as well as a possibility to give some added value as well for fellow colleagues, for other people who work in the bubble facing similar experiences. So by the end of the day, uh, it's a work that, where I can support people in their real everyday life, disregarding if it's like an office-related situation, a work-related situation, or maybe something from the private life that impacts one or the other side. And I can professionally work on the topic, so content-wise to consult people, support them when it comes to the work of emotions in politics. I'm sure we're going to talk about this as well, <coughs> because... Uh, yeah, it's fascinating to see how this whole big topic of emotions developed or did not develop over the last years in the bubble, in the field, in politics. Yeah, no, super fascinating. And and I think, I mean, this beckons well into what I wanted to start by talking about, which is how are emotions present in the political world around us? Maybe not even here in Europe, but just the grander political scheme. What role do emotions play? A big one, obviously, as we all have <laughs> Yes, I kind of set you up for a positive answer here. But. <laughs> no, <clears throat> of course, you already mentioned it before. And the world of emotions is a vast, a vast one. So you have a psychological approach on it. Uh, you have behavioral scientists who focus on it. And there's as well a political dimension to it. Um, the thing with the political dimension from what I've now learned about it, read about it, heard about it, is that it's still a very academic debate. Mm. Which makes sense, though, looking how much influence academia gives into the development of political debates. But what struck me a bit was we're talking here about something that we feel, something that we have, all of us, a practical experience with. We all have been in the situation when we have been absolutely super happy, completely devastated, angry, stressed. We all know that. Mm -hmm. And then we try to grasp something that comes from the heart that we are supposed to feel and try to grasp it with our mind. That, of course, has limits. And that I saw a lot in this political context that the role of emotions will be analyzed. We try to grasp it. What does it do? How does it work? To make our strategies from it, to derive strategies and approaches from it. But at the end of the day, we don't practice it ourselves. It's more like that we think about it and the moment we stop thinking about it, it's not there anymore. But can we really just detach ourselves from our emotions just because we tell us we can? Yeah, that, that's true. Because whenever you think of a political theory, you don't focus on the individuals as agents. You just focus a bit on the rationality behind the moves they'll make. And when emotions do happen, you try to rationalize it away as, oh, it, the, their values changed or, you know, the, the, the benefits changed. So this actually did happen. But we didn't really start by, by just saying, oh, 
this person had this particular emotion. They were happy. They were sad. They were threatened. They were angry. And this actually impacted a larger causal effect. So, no, it's an interesting point. We're a little bit, got a little bit oblivious to that. So you can see it actually that over decades, logic and mind was superior to emotions and feeling. And that changed and shifted a little bit. Um, but this shift has not yet reached, I'd say, the political world, the political bubble, at least not in the extent it could and should be. I always like to see emotion as a language. If you understand it as a language, it's something you can learn, of course, but you have to practice it in order to master it. And here again, this is basically the link to the argument I made beforehand. If you only approach this language with your brain, you can learn the vocabulary, you can learn the grammar, you get an idea of what it does, but if you can't practice it, what serves the language? Yeah. And here's basically where I want to support a little bit and make it a practice more. The emotions a practice, the feeling a practice, and to get out of our head back into our heart. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should get out of our minds and stop analyzing and scrutinizing everything. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. But we tend as humans always to go to the one extreme or the other extreme. I would like to give it a bit more balance and offer it as a complementary approach. Mm. Yeah, no, fascinating. And I think we've talked in hypotheticals for quite a while now, but let, let's take it back to reality. Are there any maybe case studies that you've seen in politics around us, either in the Brussels bubble, um, you know, in, lo- in the larger EU context, or even the worldwide context, where you where we're even to look at and then be like, hey, that's an emotion. Then what can we learn from those as, as people, as students, I would say? Let me first answer the question, what do emo- emotions do? Because in, in the yeah, context of, of what, you, what, you, what you asked me, this is important understanding. So if we've already talked about what are emotions, and that was just a, a little teaser of what emotions can be and how they can be defined, you find a lot there in, in the literature. But the question, what do emotions do? I find it highly interesting. Because basically, you can say it has a passive and an active side to it. So in terms of the in terms of the passive one, we are so often not aware that we're influenced by emotions. Uh, the best the best uh, example for it is basically commercials on the internet, on television. It's constantly influencing our emotion consciously or subconsciously. Most of the time, more than 90% of all the processes that happen within us are subconscious processes. So we don't realize that. Mm-hmm. And for example, the, the, a lot of companies make use out of that to influence a certain behavior within people. And most of the people are aware that this happens while not being aware of the moment it happens. That's mm-hmm. quite interesting. So basically you have this passive influence that you get from the outside. And when you have a passive side, you have an active side. So emotions can be used, even abused, misused, in order to control and influence people. So that being said, back to your questions of the, of the concrete examples, now that we know that we have an active use of emotions and a rather passive consumption of emotions. And actually, I would like to give you two, three examples that are not... Go for it. ...too unknown to the public, I'd say, Um, talking about like bigger historic events uh, or situations and personalities 
just to show a little bit and underline that it happens on each level. So disregarding where you work, if you're just an intern who started in Brussels, or if you're already up there and working as a head of state, head of government, head of parliamentary group, whatever it may be, uh, it doesn't protect you from being emotional. So, and the first example I would like to give you is uh, dates 12 years back now, uh, 2011, the accident after the earthquake in uh, Fukushima um, that led to, in Germany at least, to a debate of the use of nuclear power. And the outcome at the time of Merkel's government was first in 2011 it had been decided that they're going to extend the running of uh, the nuclear power plants. And after the incident in Fukushima, within a couple of months, it was a complete U-turn, and it was decided that basically this year, quite interestingly, 2023 in Germany, the last power plants will be shut down. So, um, and if you see the time span and when it happened and the context, a government who was beforehand 100% in favor of nuclear energy within a couple of months decided we cut it here. Mm. And the emotional impact that came from the media, that came from the public, was so big that, of course, it put pressure on the government. And it's something we're absolutely aware of. But think about it if you see just from an expert, like, or from, from, a, from a more professional side to see, okay, I have now the time, we try to rationally see what happened in Fukushima, what does make like, the most sense economically in terms of safety questions and all of that. But there was no time for it. So the emotion took over. Hmm. And I'm not here to judge if it's a good or bad decision. Huh? It's more to show, okay, this is a situation where this happened on the highest level. There were even states of MPs um, uh, giving interviews saying exactly that. We're basically in an emotional situation within the parliament. They even acknowledged that. But it's something that happens. Mm -hmm. But every time it happens, it's so unexpected that it happens. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's a crisis situation in a sense. I mean, maybe it wasn't a crisis in... Germany, but it was definitely in Japan and for the Western world as a large too, who have been relying on nuclear energy. So it's interesting to see that the pivot. I mean, I've heard a long time there's already underlying emotions around nuclear energy from the past with the Chernobyl power plant that yeah. also caused a lot of fears and the the Cold War and that being brought up again. It's it's interesting to see how those crises kind of thrust it back in the spotlight. Yeah. And they can then basically you can channel emotion with, with them, right? Mm. So that's what you what you could have seen there. Huh? The government could have said la later on, okay, we, we do another U-turn, yet another U-turn. I mean, like, we all know that this is, uh, after all, possible. Yeah. But uh, it was interesting to see how quickly this crisis changed um, the political behavior. And, and the emotional side of it is not to be underestimated. I mean, in some senses, they're saying right now we're in an era of crises in the European Union. Are there any yeah. lessons you might take from even the Fukushima crisis, in a sense, for our leaders? I mean, von der Leyen has been praised for her leadership in the crisis era, but are there any lessons you might give her looking back at, for instance, perhaps a German case study? The thing is that it's hardly possible to predict, of course, these these situations. I mean, the, mm -hmm. this is this is um, a little bit the, the the challenge of them, and it's hard as well to predict how 
you will react emotionally or what emotional uh, implications that will have for you. We've surely seen in the last decade that we have like had many, many different crises. Some of them predictable, others completely out of the blue. Um, and they all pose emotional challenges. And maybe as a kind of like learning, maybe from the last years, is that the emotional time you need to take to process is always taking up more time. Hmm. Hence, it's super difficult in the first moment to get yourself out of the situation, observe yeah. yourself and say, oh, okay, I'm in an emotional uh, situation of stress, of anxiety, and all of them, they affect our decision-making. So the lesson is here maybe that disregarding how stressful and how out of the blue the situation might be, the leaders need to be capable of going basically out of their own position for the time being and see, okay, where do I stand emotionally? And it's so easy to say that. It's yeah. so easy to say that and so hard to do. And this is another conclusion from for myself why I think it's important to do these emotional trainings because most people are simply not aware of how they react emotionally. So looking back at the, at the crisis of the last decades, um, I would not say if they had all had an emotional training that it would have been like perfect to the mm -hmm. solutions to the to the respective challenges at the time but it allows you a different way maybe as well of communicating to others what you're doing why you're doing it i mean it has so many different implications if you are there out of fear deciding something and you have to d explain it to the public uh, who, who's going to stand in front of the crowd and say like yeah sorry guys i decided that because i was so afraid yeah but you can by understanding your own emotions you can communicate it differently and hands can at least take a lot of tension mm -hmm. out of a certain situation yeah that's a good way of putting it because when i view those situations i always feel like pressure is a very dominant force that's i mean even in our own lives when we make decisions here but i think tension is at least one part of pressure you can kind of relax if that makes sense as i said earlier if you if you understand it emotion the world itself yeah energy in motion emotion mm. and after all it's we all know that if we're really excited this yeah. kind of feeling inside that that we want to you know shout it out yeah or uh when we're sad the energy turns into tears mm-hmm of all the pressure that we have. You can see it in this way. Ah, you, people believe in it, other people don't believe it. I always think it's a very nice way of putting it uh, to make it as well like a, a visible understanding for someone like me who is a very visual person. Uh, I need to create pictures and stories for, for everything. Very true, very true. Speaking of pictures and stories, you mentioned you had several examples. We're, we're mm -hmm. dragging a little longer on the theoretical part than I wanted to, but maybe we'll mention one more example quickly and then yeah. go into the... To the, the hands-on time, I suppose. Of course, of course. Let me give you two quick examples, Go actually. for it, then, yeah. Um, because they're important, because they're, they're very complementary to each other. One example is, uh, as well, very well known. It's Obama's campaign in 2008, the presidential one. Yes, we can. We yeah. all still have that in, in mind. And it was a genius way of emotional marketing. And there, Obama used hope as an accelerator for his cause. And via spilling over this emotion, he influenced not only basically his voters, but you could really feel it 
at the time, I remember even in Germany when, when Obama came before having been elected president for a speech, you, you could feel something in the air. Like people mm. had this kind of like feeling for change. He really transmitted it with this emotion. And that was a very authentic way of doing it. Yeah. Emotional marketing only works when you're authentic with what you do. And here again, we can discuss Obama's politics, if it was good or bad. That's not the point for me, at least. But he used the emotion that he was feeling, the one for change, for a better time. He was standing for it, using it to influence the people around him in a very positive way. Mm. So you don't, you don't always have or not only have the negative implications of emotions by influencing people, for example, to putting them into fear, in a state of fear. This is very often used, unfortunately, to put people into a state of fear and anxiety. So this is a positive way of influencing. Yeah. And another positive way of influencing that, which is even a much more challenging situation, is the, the Christchurch attacks in New Zealand uh, a couple of years ago and Jacinda Ardern's response to it. Because she had so many options, but she decided to show sadness, compassion and love as a reaction to what happened. She was putting the victims in the focus and not the terrorist, mm -hmm. taking a completely different tone, calming down the society by showing, okay, I suffer from it as well. And at the same time, she took political steps. For example, I think there was an increased... Uh, I'm not 100% sure about the details, but I think at the time, back at the time, they restricted the gun laws that already have been strict in New Zealand, but they even restricted it th further. Um, but the point is that she was so good at grasping the emotion of the country, of the people, and at the same time mirroring it and calming the people. Mm. She could have done differently. Yeah? She could have, yeah. like other politicians, go there and make the classic assumptions. Okay, see, terrorist attack. We need to check our borders uh, to see who's coming to our country um, because all the foreigners become, I don't know, dangerous to our societies. All these, yeah. all these ideas you often hear, right? Because that's more fighting them off, right? You're saying her approach is much more sympathizing with the victims and then moving forward from there, which... It's different. Which and at the same yeah. time, it doesn't mean you have to accept what happened. Yeah. You can do something against it, mm. but with a completely different spin. So you can see with these three different examples, with 2011 Merkel's decision in, uh, in Germany after the Fukushima incident, with Obama's uh, president, first presidential campaign and the focus of hope, and Arden's decision how to react to these terrorist attacks... They're all completely different in context, different, different places of time, yeah. different places in the world, different politicians in different political realities. But they all worked with emotions and work with emotions. And disregarding what position they have, they're all affected by it. Mm. And that applies to all of us. N neither you nor I nor those state leaders. We go home and say, like, okay, now we can cut off the day and everything that happened today is not our, none of our business anymore. Or the other way around. If we have a private issue that bothers us in our head, um, that gives us, like, a, an emotional challenge, we're not going to work and say, like, okay, I'm thinking about my problem again tonight. Huh? Yeah. Some people may be capable of doing that, but most people, let, let's be true to ourselves. We're all, like, go back to it and focus then 
a lot about yeah our emotional state of mind yeah i think we, we could keep talking about the academic portion for so long but i think you're drawing a really good segue a bit into the individual into the us about I mean, from my perspective, a person working in Brussels in this industry, which can be quite, as you mentioned, tense, uh, uh, stressful at times. And where do you fit in here? Like, how do you bridge this academic literature with persons like me? What do you do in, in your work to kind of make that a reality? Mm, to understand that, it's important to maybe understand the role of emotions again today uh, and then in, the, in this political context, in the bubble where we're Go working. Go for it then, yeah. So what has changed over the last years that I'd say, for example, or I'd argue that we need to focus more and more even on emotion. Mm -hmm. So emotions have been there, as I said. And if you think about it, the political world is a world where we interact a lot. We debate. Decision-making is a group decision. We live in democracy. So there are many entities and many people involved. Hence... It's always an exchange of ideas, exchange of emotions as well, because we might be emotionally stuck to a specific idea or less to another, more to, to one, more to one, less to another. So we can't really avoid not working with emotions, right? And so what changed is, of course, the use of Internet and social media over the last decade uh, in, in particular, we are influenced much more by Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Uh, all these are uh, platforms where emotions are exchanged as well. Emotions that are triggered by pictures for visual people, by statements via Twitter. We all know how, how a simple statement can create the biggest shitstorms, right? <laughs> yes. And this is all emotional reaction. So we have a lot of platforms where we constantly... Uh, basically are bombarded with not emotions itself, but situations that trigger our emotions. And one other important aspect is something that has always been there, and that's the effect of change. Change is the only constant in life, right? But when you're focused on your projects, you're, you're very much basically living in your own little world, in your own little time zone. But we're now bombarded again, thanks to the internet, uh, with information constantly. Changes happen here, changes happen there. Decisions have to make been made quicker and quicker and faster and faster. And though we are, as humans, capable of adapting to change, if it gets too fast, we just have an overload. And we have quite often this overload feeling. So if we take these elements that I mentioned, like the role of the internet, how we are like triggered um, or influenced the variables that come along with change. And then maybe, let's say, the accelerator, as I mentioned earlier, of COVID over the last days that all made the dealing and working with emotions, in my opinion, much more visible to people and much, much more needed. And thankfully now people go more to psychologists, consult, coaches, uh, and do much, much more for it. So I think even in the society it has... It has um, yeah, reached a different, a different, uh, a different level. So, I wanted to stress this um, as reason for why we feel sometimes so overwhelmed, or why the emotional, um, the emotional situations that we face have, like at least from a from a subjective perception, uh, that they have increased. And basically. What I want to offer is 
bridging the academic and scientific world with the practical ones. So as I said before, see it as a language. I want to help the people train the language of emotions. Then let's talk a little bit about the idea behind it. So yeah. what do I want to achieve with this bridging of the, uh, of the scientific, academic yeah. knowledge that we already have with the practical elements? So as I said, we're working in international uh, contexts, fast-paced world with people from all over the world. We need to make decisions on smaller and higher scales. So cooperation is important. Mm -hmm. And to understand one another and their emotional point of view is a crucial element. Because, for example, we all have been raised uh, in a specific social context. We have learned specific values. We've adopted them. We might have copied them from family, from friends. Ways of perceiving the world. After all, emotions are as well a question of perception. Mm -hmm cannot necessarily say that there are good and bad emotions because they might serve a purpose. Even pain that shows you on a physical level, for example, oh, no, that stove is hot, should not touch it. So this classic learning experience, right? That means that we all have our specific emotional glasses that we wear. How we are supposed to interpret emotions and reactions. And we tend to analyze other people with the same glasses that we are wearing and we tend to forget that they might see those glasses or have that they wear different glasses what does that mean in in, in practice for example there's a, a lovely book from uh, from Aaron Meyer the culture map where she describes a little bit on on that when it comes to intercultural com communication and for example when you have an international team and you have um, just to quote here some of the examples from from that respective book Uh, where you have then someone from the Netherlands where they are raised to give direct and honest feedback. Uh, and for them, it's just normal to say, oh, that was shit what you did there. That was not a good job. That needs to be improved. Whereas if you have someone, for example, from the UK coming, that they're, where they are much more used to soften their feedback, saying, oh, that was a great job you've done so far. Maybe we could improve this or that. Both of them mean or want to say the same, but they're culturally used to express that in a different way. And the understanding of what that means is as well uh, culturally uh, affected. So the Dutch person might understand from the British reply, oh my God, he doesn't want to take a decision, so he's weak in deciding, for example. Or the other way around, that the British person feels offended by the direct feedback. Um, and that creates, of course, an emotion. So just this as an example, when you understand better your own emotions and, and then as well get an idea of other, that others might have a different emotional approach, you can um, improve general cooperation, teamwork, uh, again, the language behind it, understand this language and you can communicate it. And as well in questions of leadership. Uh, leaders that have a, have a better connection to their own emotions can lead in different ways. Of course, you have people in your team who work more emotionally and others are less emotionally. That applies to everyone, basically. Mm -hmm. But if you have an understanding of, oh, there's someone who's rather um, an emotional person, so I can talk with this person on a more emotional level. And if you understand that this is needed, you become a better leader. By expressing your own needs makes you more human. 
And if you're more human, people tend to trust you more. Again, here's some, some examples. And when I mention cooperation, teamwork or leadership, I'm again not talking only about the, the highest levels. I think we should all learn should have all learned that already in school. Some for some people it's already too late, but hey, it's never too late to learn something new after all. And um, yeah, so if you take this package and have these emotional skills and learn them, then you have a completely different a new skill set, how to approach situations, challenges, decision making. And uh, I think we can make the world a little bit better by uh, understanding our own emotions and our own little reactions. So this is where I want to help people to give them these skills in addition as kind of see it as a set to navigate uh, through different storms. So uh, you're you're on your ship uh, in this political bubble and want to need to steer uh, uh, through a storm and uh, maybe the the tools that you've been provided with from university, from home, and they're not working in this perspective storm, but uh, it's always good to have backup skills and backup sets. So um, this is basically the the idea behind that. Yeah, super interesting. I, I think it's a, I think it's very important that we're focusing more and more on this kind of like emotional training and, and more knowledge of this part of you know, our human psyche, especially nowadays as I guess society becomes slowly more receptive towards the. Uh, this, this line of thinking and working. I think we should start wrapping it up where we've been going on a little while, but I guess to kind of wrap it all up together, do you have maybe a suggestion or, or maybe a tip or, or a learning that you want to leave the, the listeners with? One thing they should maybe practice in their own lives, maybe one lesson they should apply to, you know, next emotional situation they yeah. find themselves in. Sure. Let me let me give you uh, my top three Ooh. of uh, We're getting basically a discount version here. <laughs> so my, my, it's my top three of basically values and goals or skills, however you want to want to phrase it, that I would like to give my clients uh, in their everyday life, in their work life. And the first thing I talked about that already indirectly a lot here is awareness. I want to increase awareness of one's emotions because it all starts with yourself. If you don't understand your own un- emotions, understand, huh? that's a word for the hat, so, <laughs> and then you go from your hat and feel it mm-hmm. and see what does it do to me hmm. and learn that, you have made already a big, 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 big step. So awareness is the first the first uh, skill, the first variable that, that's important to my work. The second one is linked to it, and this is the communication of the respective emotions. Uh, it's nice to know what it does to you and how you feel, and if you feel like angry at someone, you should be allowed to say that. Yeah. Of course, within certain limits, there should be all <laughs> limits to everything, but uh, the communication of emotions is Cree and crucial. Yeah, because I think it's even, when you talk even to communicating your emotions, it's also removing, I guess, some of the emotional attachment to emotions in itself. So, for instance, if you're angry at some, somebody, you're angry about something, that shouldn't always be perceived as a negative, in a sense. Because I had an experience earlier today where I was, like, annoyed or, ang- or a little, not really angry, but, you know, annoyed at something, which I knew in the long run would serve me better to do my work. But in, this, in the short term, it's like, if you look annoyed, though, it's kind of, 
if you perceive me as annoyed and take that negatively, that's, I guess, a bit stunting to some of the emotional development, I suppose. I think it feeds into that awareness that you're talking about as well as the communication. But oh, absolutely. Just a personal example. I hope my colleague doesn't listen to this, but third uh, <laughs> <laughs> point, please, before I dig my grave too deep. <laughs> no, but, but as I said, they're, they're, they're definitely linked. And as you just described with this example, there is, there is this link. So, And here again, even if you're aware, but you can't communicate, no one's helped. And if you can communicate, but yeah. you don't know what you're communicating there because you're just like bursting out the first emotion that comes to your mind. Yeah. We all know that as well. Eh? These situations where we say something, then like in, a, in an argument with a partner, with family uh, or, 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 or someone at work, and we say something that we immediately regret because we say it out of the emotion. We all know this kind of, kind of feeling. So sometimes if you're uh, not aware, but you're communicating nonetheless, that might not be the, yeah. the smartest solution either. Um, and then let me quickly uh, uh, talk about the last and third element that I think is very in interesting. Though I used before the word resilience, the mm -hmm. focus I want to give is more on anti-fragility. Anti-fragility, okay. Exactly. Well, what does that mean? In general, um, we have systems, when we talk about resilience, you know, a storm comes and you resist disregarding uh, how strong the storm is. So you remain more or less the same. So this is the idea behind resilience, if you see it in the emotional, in the emotional context. So something happens to you, and if you're resilient, disregarding might be challenging, it might be stressful, it might be hard. By the end of the time, you're basically the same, more or less. Mm -hmm. But anti-fragility is the next step where you learn, and this is so difficult, so difficult, where you learn to see out of the box in the very emotion, in the very situation where you're emotionally challenged and see what does this have as a benefit, as a potential to grow for me. I've lost my job. What does that give me as potential? Resilient people try to go back and say, okay, this is emotionally challenging, but I will find a solution. Things will go on. Things will move on. I will be fine. Focusing basically in the same terms. Anti-fragile anti people go then and think, okay, it didn't work out. Maybe this offers me the opportunity to do something in life that I always wanted to do, that I've never had the courage to do. This is a more like practical example, but anti-fragility means in, in the sense to get to be stronger when you get out of it. Yeah. No, that's, that's a fascinating list of concepts to keep in mind. And I'll, I'll definitely keep a few in my head as I, I navigate my next week or two at work here. And I hope that all my listeners do too. If the listeners are particularly interested in what you were saying or even marginally interested and they want to learn more about what you're doing, should they reach out to you somewhere? Is, is there somewhere, somewhere they can find more about what you offer, your services, your Yes. Even 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 a, even a hotline to call, I suppose, if you <laughs> think in the eighty cents. Uh, we're, not, we're we're not there yet, uh, but maybe hey, uh, there's always a revival. I've seen that the seventies coming back in terms, of at least uh, you know, all the flowery outfits. That is it? Now? I thought that was just carnival, right? <laughs> I've seen that as well before uh, before already quite uh, quite sometimes. Uh, but yeah, sure, of course. Um, as you mentioned uh, early on, um, I'm new to the scene in the sense of like what I'm doing right now. Uh, I started my own work this year, so it's fairly fresh. But um, so yeah, basically, uh, you can of course uh, get in touch with me online uh, via my website uh, vandicoaching.com, um, then as well via Instagram and LinkedIn. 
uh, where I um, post and inform a little bit about my work, what I'm going to do, and you find online as well all the little information. And if you have more questions, you can as well book a call. It's entirely for free. Uh, it's uh, kind of like the promotion in the beginning <laughs> to answer people's specific questions. What does it entail, a coaching? How does it work? Uh, because after all, I'm, I'm offering different uh, sets and different packages on the individual coaching level, group coaching levels, uh, meditations, but as well in terms of my little building expertise on emotions and politics, I'm doing as well talks and uh, consulting. Um, so it's going to be a lot. But yeah, feel free to, uh, to uh, have a look at my website, get some information, uh, leave me a little like and uh, support a little bit the, the emotional journey. Yeah, great. I'm hoping people will take up that offer because it definitely, I mean, at least in the room here, I felt a good energy coming from the other side of the table over there, if you, Patrick. So. <laughs> Thanks to you. Huh? Yeah, but I'm hoping people enjoyed this episode. If you did, please like, subscribe, uh, leave a comment, uh, let me know who you want to hear on next, and also any comments on, on this episode would be greatly appreciated. So. And again, I think, Patrick, thanks a lot for taking me through this emotional journey. <laughs> thanks to you. Thanks for having me for, for the conversation. Yeah, no worries. And, and hopefully I'll see you again sometime in the near future. So, Looking forward to it. Yeah. Until the next episode, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone, and uh, have a great time, man.